Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. In case you didn't hear uh, Derek mention it earlier, Michael is out with a, a COVID exposure um, in his family, and so he's out for a couple weeks. Didn't, didn't get exposed here at the church, but we thought it would be safe and best if, even though it was a second person exposure, that uh, he do the quarantine thing for 14 days. And so you'll see him two weeks from now. Um, so we'll have another guest worship leader next week, but grateful for Derek for leading. And um, Bradley, if you haven't met yet, he leads worship for the Greenhouse Program, the college ministry here. That's a shout out from the college crew. So always grateful to have them involved. I'm going to ask you to go to Luke 18 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to pull your attention to a couple things that uh, we want you to note. If you didn't get a chance to pick up the paper version of the notes, you can get it electronically. If you look in the little pockets in front of you, in your seat right in front of you, you'll see a card that looks just like this. It has a QR code on it. If you scan that, if you have a smartphone, you're able to scan the QR code and it'll pull up the notes for you this morning as well as an electronic version of the bulletin. So you're up to date on the things going on at the church. If you don't have a phone like that or you don't want to do that, there's paper versions of the notes in the back of the auditorium and you can go back there. Feel free to pick them up there in the atrium back there and you can grab them from there. Um, the other thing I want to do is acknowledge any veterans that might be in the auditorium this morning. If you're a veteran, would you stand up this morning? One, two, three, four, five, six. Thank you. Let's just celebrate you. Thank you for your service. Really grateful for what you did. We get to continue to do what we do. So grateful for your service to the community and to the nation. Thank you very much. Well, if you're watching from home or you're here in the auditorium, um, you just uh, hear this from me again. I, I know you probably received the email I sent out this week in regards to COVID procedures here at the church. Just thank you very much for helping us with the mask issues and, and the protocols that we're practicing here, trying to keep people safe. Lots of COVID going on, you all know that. Lots of spiking in the community, and it's obviously reflected in in-person attendance. It's, there's a lot of it in the community these days. And so we're just trying to do our part, practice the protocols that we can. So thank you for helping us with that. We're very grateful. Well, in this particular parable this morning, um, we're in book four. If you didn't pick that up yet, it's in the atrium, the fourth book in the parable series. And Rich and his team did just a fantastic job with it. If you didn't get one, you can pick one up back there. But where we're at in this, it, it really deserves some historical background and some attention to detail. We haven't been able to really bear down on history with these. I know we throw anecdotes along the way and I, I give you information, but this morning will be even more unique because you really need to understand the historical context in which this story is told. And it's gonna take a little bit of time to do that so that you really appreciate what Jesus is driving at because it's such a short parable. So with that in mind, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me that God would give us a, a mindset that we would approach this in a framework in which we would say back to God, keep me from being like this Pharisee in this article. We find ourselves reading it removed. We see the black and white version of what's written. In context, we can find ourselves maybe removed so far from it, we just cast our eyes on the Pharisee and say, glad I'm not like that. But yet Jesus told us this for the purpose of understanding that it applies to all of his followers. And we could find ourselves being like this. And so we come before God this morning asking, not only that he helps us understand, but that he would help us to see weaknesses in our own life. Would you join me in that prayer? Let's pray together that way. 
Father, we do pray for our community, for our nation, for the world globally, that this COVID issue would be eliminated, that you would um, just eradicate it from our world. Thank you for vaccines that are being produced. Thank you for doctors. Thank you for medicine. Thank you for the ability to treat this. And thank you that the mortality rate is so low. But in the meantime, God, we recognize it's a plague. It's a problem for us. And we just ask that you would remove this interruption from our world. We, We thank you for the opportunity we have to be a church that can be open during this period of time and for the technology that we have. So, Father, I pray that you be with both those of us here in the auditorium and those who are watching from home virtually, that you would speak to us now in this moment. And, Father, especially as we turn our attention to the characters in this parable, and we see this tax collector, and we see this Pharisee, and we're, we're tempted to put them in silos and say that we're not like that. God, show us where we might be. Work on our heart now, Father, that we wouldn't find ourselves like a Pharisee, and where we are, that we would be willing to address that issue. I pray, Father, that you would speak powerfully through your word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. By all measures, most of Jesus' parables fall into the category of being extreme, offensive, shocking, if you are in the first century. For those of us who live in 2020, we're removed from that setting. And so historically, we don't really understand or grasp what's going on in that particular setting. We read it and we feel a little bit removed from the emotions. But for these individuals who are hearing him and they're processing what he's saying, they're mortified by his statements. This particular parable that you're about to look at is no different than the other parables that we looked at. Jesus is about to describe an individual whom in their world they would determine as being righteous, right with God, and having the things of God all figured out. And Jesus is about to clarify, not, that is not the case, which would be shocking to the individuals who are listening to this. This story is the very antithesis of everything that first century Israel believed religiously. Everything that they had been taught culturally, they have a view about how to get to God. And Jesus is about to say, that's not true. So he's looking right into the eyes, right into the very eyes of people who are super religious. And he's about to tell them exactly what they need to hear because they don't understand God. They've arrived at a conclusion. They talk about God. They read God's word. They know how to be good, but they don't know how to be righteous, even though they think that they do. So verse 9 in chapter 18, Luke 18, sets the stage for us. Let's go to verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So right up front, we get to see this all too common human trait. You and I, and people in the first century, were really, really good at putting people in silos. And Jesus says, that's a problem. We're prone to view other people with contempt. Now we'll come back to that particular point in just a moment. Why this parable at this particular time? What, to what end? What's, what's the purpose in this? Now, last week, you might have noticed that we were talking about the second coming, 
that parable was about the widow who had been robbed of her money, and she went to the judge looking for righteousness and for vindication. Well, we began talking about how Jesus was hinting at the second coming, and he was talking about the signs of the times, and he was talking about, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Why this particular parable right on the heels of that? Well, in every parable that we've studied over the past year, you probably have noticed this. We've seen that when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's talking about the here and now. In other words, the kingdom that's in our heart, the reign of the Holy Spirit over our lives, the spiritual kingdom, if you will. But you might have noticed last week there was a transition. And the transition was that he began using language that was speaking of future things, of the second coming, of the establishment of the future kingdom not about necessarily the spiritual kingdom, but about the earthly kingdom and the millennial kingdom. So those who are here now, right now, if I'm confusing you at all, hear me on this. Those that are here right now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're at home, you're watching from home, you're a believer in Jesus, your power of a spiritual kingdom. The Holy Spirit has reign over your life. It's the kingdom that Jesus rules over right now. And you will be in the future earthly millennial kingdom and the future eternal kingdom, we have to keep that framework in mind as we move into this parable and understand this passage that way. So let me show you verse 9 in a slightly modified way. I'm going to show you an edited version just so we can plow through verse 9, help you to understand this. Luke 18, 9, he told this parable to some people who trust in themselves. Now, immediately, there's no mistaking whatsoever. He's got a target audience, and his target audience is this two definition, this trusting in themselves and those who look on others with contempt. It's directed towards people who think that their lives impress God, that they impress God with good works, and therefore, they're entitled to heaven. God likes me so much, God likes what I'm doing so much that he's going to let me in one day. And he says, also, he's going to deliver this to individuals who are looking down on others as being less than them. I told you we'll come back to that thought on contempt in just a minute. Just bear with me on this phrase now. He told this parable to some people. If you have your Bible open, look at some people. You might even want to circle it if you have a hard copy of the Bible in front of you. This is anybody who believes that they're good enough in and of themselves, and we would have to agree that is much of the world's population. Most of the world's population has come to the conclusion that if I do enough good things, I'm good enough that God will let me in one day. This is about someone who has any inkling whatsoever about going to heaven based on being a good person. Now, let's let me rabbit trail with you for just a minute. He told this parable to some people. It doesn't say he told this about those who trust in themselves, but he told it to those who trust in themselves. So hear this. He's looking them directly in the eye, very religious people who have come to the conclusion that they're good enough for God to let them in. And he's looking them right in their eye, telling them face to face, not talking about them, but talking to them. New Hope, can I compel you to be like this? Can I compel you to be this way? Don't talk about people's faults, but talk to people. 
It's really juicy to talk about people. It's very, very hard. It's very bitter to talk to them, but you find Jesus talking directly to them. Now, let's circle back to that word contempt. Look with me on the screen. He told this parable to some people who viewed others with contempt. They trust in their own righteousness. We just saw that. And they view others with contempt. Now, contempt means to ridicule people or to mock, to disparage them, disparaging sarcasm. We're talking about being an adult bully. So here's the way the Greek language frames this. This is the imagery around this word contempt. The imagery is of one human who looks at another human as being absolutely worthless, having zero value. And you really find that in the Greek word. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning, exotheneo. You see this on the screen. Do you, do you see the last part of that definition, to set at naught? That means set at zero. To see someone as zero, having no value whatsoever. So contempt is the absolute worst kind of scorn. It's to look down on someone as having no value whatsoever. And it's only used twice in all four of the Gospels. Here in this parable, and then again in Luke 23. Let me show you Luke 23 on the screen. Herod, with the soldiers, after treating him, and that's Jesus, with exutheneo, contempt, and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. It's not the only place that's used, though. It's also used in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Look with me at this version of it, Acts 4. He is the stone which the builders exutheneo, the leaders of the nation, see Jesus as zero, counting him as naught or nothing. It's the exact same verb that Jesus is using in this parable. Those who looked on others to be treated as if they're absolutely nothing. And he's saying, this is the way this Pharisee is going to look on this tax collector. So Jesus is calling out this disgusting form of self-applauding pride in the same breath. He says there's individuals who trust in their own righteousness. They also look down on those with contempt as being beneath them. And unfortunately, this is the first century world. This is the kind of hypocrisy that takes place that just flows freely from the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the law keepers. If you're new to church, maybe this is the first time you've ever dialed in even to the Bible. You hear this about Pharisees when we use this term. They're the keepers of the law. They're the police of the intellectual world. They keep people in line by reminding them constantly about what God's law says, and then they enforce it, sometimes in a very brutal way. So those individuals, those keepers of the law in the Hebrew world, are called the habarim. Now, that's the law keepers. What about the law breakers? Well, law breakers, they're known as the ahamarits. In Hebrew language, the ahamarits are the lowlife. They're the bottom of society. So you have the habarim and the ahamarits. The habarim are the law keepers. The law breakers are the ahamarits, the, the lowlife. So in, in the mind of the Pharisees, they, as the habarim, would do everything they could to avoid any type of physical contact with the Ahamarits. 
literally, if they're walking down the street and they see someone whom they determine to be unclean, they would cross the street and go to the other side. They don't even want to brush up against their clothing or against their robe. They don't want to be in their presence. You see that when Jesus is telling the parables about him going to places where he would be invited to sit down and eat, and the Pharisees would look at him and say, what are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? That's the Ahamaritz. They're unclean. Kenneth Bailey summarizes this really well. He's a historian of the Bible. Let me show you his quote. In the eyes of a strict Pharisee, the most obvious candidate for the classification of Ahamaritz would be a tax collector. But there was a particular kind of uncleanliness that was contracted by sitting, riding, or even leaning against something unclean. This uncleanliness was called Midras uncleanliness. And for Pharisees, the clothes of an Ahamaritz counted as suffering midras uncleanliness. Can't even touch them. Don't want to go near them. And they did not and would not get near the lowlifes that they despised. Now, let me remind you, just to keep you on track, Jesus has been talking about the second coming. He's been talking about the establishment of his millennial kingdom and future eternal kingdom. He reigns now over a spiritual kingdom. But he's been talking right up to this point about the second coming and saying, you must be ready. So you find this very purposeful flow because logically anyone hearing him talk about the second coming would say, well, how do you get ready? Who gets in? How does that happen? Who qualifies for that kingdom? So you find this very purposeful parable, the parable that you're about to examine, perfectly flows out of this discussion with him setting it up this way. So here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And let me just state right up front where this thing is headed. Jesus is deliberately identifying the only two religions that have ever existed in the world. And these two religions you see in your notes this morning, you're going to see on the screen right now, here they are, the religion of human accomplishment and the religion of God's accomplishment. You go back all the way to the time of Adam and Eve, and you will find the religion of human accomplishment. You'll find it in the time of Noah, in the time of Daniel, in the time of Malachi, in the first century, in the 1500s, in the 1800s, and in 2020. There is the religion of human accomplishment, what I can do to make God like me enough. But the other religion is the religion of God's accomplishment. So on one side, you've got the Pharisee, and this Pharisee is arrogant, and he's condescending, and he's snide, and clearly self-righteous, and he stands as near the threshold of the temple as he possibly can, getting right at the leading edge of the altar. And then you have this tax collector, and he's the outcast. He's the untouchable of society, the Ahamaritz, the very object of contempt, And he's so drenched with guilt that when he enters the temple area, he won't go near the front. He'll he'll stand far, far away because his guilt is so heavy, he feels unclean, not worthy to be in the presence of the righteous people. And he's painfully aware that he doesn't deserve God's mercy. He's seeking God's mercy He wants God's forgiveness, but he's aware that he doesn't deserve it. He's not righteous, and he knows it. That's the difference between he and the Pharisee. 
So in Jesus' story, we find these two individuals who are extreme opposites in the way that God's looking at them. So he tells the story that two men went up to the temple to pray. That happened twice a day, nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. It was known as the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice or the afternoon sacrifice. I need to help set the stage for you so you understand the setting in this. At 9 a.m., let's just imagine that people are moving across the city at probably about 8.30 in the morning. They begin flowing towards the temple, and they begin ascending these long, steep stairs to get up to the temple platform. They want to be present when the priest makes a sacrifice. So during this time frame, they begin approaching the temple. So let's just jump forward to the afternoon sacrifice. Let's say it's precisely 3 in the afternoon. And the people are all gathered by the hundreds and perhaps the thousands. And they see the priest make the sacrifice on the altar, and the blood begins dropping down off the sides of the altar. And and the blood sacrificially, symbolically opens the way to God because atonement has been made. And immediately following the sacrifice, the priest lights incense, and the incense billows and it clusters into a fog like smoke and people can watch it ascending and they see the altar burning and they see the incense burning and they watch as the smoke ascends before God like their prayers ascend before God because atonement has been made and therefore they're in a position where they can come before God and pray to him because the opening has been offered for them. The priest then steps forward and announces a benediction over the people before dismissing them from his presence. He announces a benediction over them, permitting them to step into a time of public prayer, and public prayer begins at that moment. So when it says they went up to the temple to pray, it's embodying all of this worship that we've just described in the temple setting because worship takes place for them at the temple. It's where they go to praise God, it's where they go to pray, it's where they go to offer to God, and that's the setting. So in this story, that's exactly the setting. This crowd has ascended the steps of the temple, and these two men are in the midst of the crowd. And one finds himself pushing all the way to the front, going to the front of the altar, being at the front of the line because he's a Pharisee. And the other finds himself at the back of the crowd, out of eyesight, because he's humiliated, but he needs to be there. And Jesus tells us what the Pharisee says, verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And a malicious tone just drips from his mouth when he says tax collector. Because he's just done what we talked about in the very beginning. The Pharisee has just dumped the tax collector into a silo. Because we're really good as humans at that, about putting people into categories. Even people that we've only meant temporarily, perhaps we hear just a sentence come out of them and we immediately mentally put them into a silo. Republicans do that to Democrats, Democrats do that to Republicans, Republicans and Democrats do that together to independents. Church people do that to each other, people we meet as strangers in the city or people that we know in our own social world. We do that all the time. We put people into mental silos. So this Pharisee is saying this tax collector, 
and he arbitrarily throws this tax collector into a mental silo labeled scum of the earth. This homeritz, this lowlife, thank you God that I'm so perfect and I'm not like him who's not so perfect. Now, for his part, the Pharisee is spiritually devout. If you go back to old biblical language, you might even use the word pious. Piety just drips from him. Religious behavior is just part of who he is. And he would probably be a pretty good neighbor. You'd love to have him as a neighbor. He pays all his bills on time. His car is always washed. He's always got his dog under control. He recycles. He does everything that you're supposed to do. He behaves the way that he's supposed to behave. And you would probably really like to have him next door to you. Music is never too loud at his house. He stands prominently, Jesus says. He stands in a very visible place, and he begins to, we'll say, quote, unquote, pray. And his prayer is self-applauding. He's applauding himself. He's looking to God just as a glance, but he begins applauding himself for how great he is. Did you notice as you read his prayer, it's all about I? I thank you that I am like this, and I am like this, and I am like this, and I'm not like this. He's got the I word in there constantly. He doesn't need anything. He's just checking in with God. God, I'm good. I don't need anything. I'm just just kind of checking in right now. He seems to come just short of congratulating God for doing such a good job of making him. It's like, good job, God. I'm pretty proud. Look at me. My life is perfect. I do everything that I'm supposed to do. Now, Jesus says he's standing, and standing is the normal posture for prayer in the first century. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus talks about those who stand in the public settings in order to draw attention to themselves. Let me show you this verse. You'll see it up on the screen. It's from Matthew chapter 6. He says this, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Now, the contrast about that, Jesus goes the opposite, and he says later, go into your closet, go into the corner where people don't see you. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't be like this Pharisee. So Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't put on a show. And here we find in this parable one of the hypocrites who's parading himself before humanity. This is no prayer to God. This is self-congratulation. It's an unequivocal confession of his own worthiness. And that's where self-righteousness leads you. It leads you to this place where say, I'm good. I got this. And in the way that only self-righteous people can do, he turns his attention to the worst. And he looks on the tax collector. God, I thank you that I'm perfect. I thank you that I'm so great that I'm not like that guy over there in the silo, that Ahamaritz, that one who doesn't have his life together. This is putting himself on display. I'm not even like the tax collector. Now, you might think this is a fabrication on Jesus' part just to make his point, but this kind of rote prayer, this type of memorized prayer is very common during that period of time 
where there was no relationship with God, there was this vain babbling going on. I'm going to show you an example from the first century at the time of Jesus, an actual rabbinical prayer. Look with me on the screen at this. I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the Beth Hab Midrash, which means the house of learning. And thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in the street corners. For I rise early and they rise early, but I rise for words of Torah and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor and they labor, but I labor and receive a reward and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run and they run, but I run to the life of the future world and they run to the pit of destruction. You get in the mindset? The Pharisees are the architect of self-righteousness. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it. And they, they drove it to this point where they put it on everybody else because they had such enormous influence as the leaders of the nation that the population looked to them. See, the population looks to its nation's leaders it looks to them to be educated and to be well-informed. And so the nation is looking to the leaders of the nation and the leaders of nations are saying, this is how you get right with God. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. You get all your T's crossed and all your I's dotted and then God will like you enough to let you in. That's the way you gain your place in the kingdom. And they all believed it. And that's who Jesus is talking to these people who have this cultural mindset. And that's not really any different than today. That's why Jesus has directed this parable to people from all generations, everybody who's caught up in this religion of human accomplishment, because that's how most people think. I, I challenge you this week, go have a conversation with someone. Start up a conversation that starts this way, and it's a very simple conversation. Just say to someone who's in your social circle, how do you understand that people get to heaven? Typically, this is the response. Well, I've been a good girl, or I've been a good boy. I've done a lot of good things. I, I hope to tip the scales in my favor one day. I, I think God's going to let me in. That's typically the response you hear from most people around the planet. That's the religion of human accomplishment. Let me show that to you one more time on the screen. You have the religion of human accomplishment or the religion of God's accomplishment. Those are the only two world religions when you really boil it down. And the most dominant lie since time began, the most anti-biblical lie is also the most commonly believed lie, that you go to heaven if you're just good enough. So typically, if I have that conversation with someone, this is the way I have to push back with a follow-up question. My question to them typically is, like, how good do you have to be to stand in the presence of a holy God? How good, church? How good do you have to be to stand before God? Well, my Bible says that God has declared that his standard is absolute perfection. That's why he says, be holy as I'm holy. So that leads me to this conclusion. You have to be as good as God to be in God's presence. How are you doing with that? You have to check yourself. The Pharisee didn't check himself. God's perfection standard is holy perfection. Let's watch the Pharisee finish out his prayer now in verse 12. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes 
of all that I get. And Jesus stops the Pharisees part right there. Now, the super pious, that word piety again, they were incredibly devout. They would go over the top, doing everything they possibly could according to the law, and then going beyond the law. And this one is doing way more than what God ever required. He's doing things that God never asked for. Fasting twice a week? He's talking Monday and Thursday. Uh, there's a lot of speculation from theologians, why would they fast on Mondays and Thursdays? Well, the belief was because it was an equal portion between Sabbath, three days removed either direction. And so they find themselves trying to get to Sabbath without evil thoughts, and they began fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. There's nothing wrong with that, but he's going way beyond what the law required because the law required people to only fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement to be reminded of what God required of them. And when it comes to giving money, when he walks by the offering box, he never misses an opportunity to shove money in there. And not just the required parts, he goes way beyond. So if someone's giving him a Panera gift card, he's tithing off his Panera gift card. He's making sure that he doesn't miss anything. The, the law required that they would only tithe off them certain parts of their crops. But this Pharisee has taken it further. He's tithing even off from the garden herbs. Jesus said, the Pharisees, woe to you, Pharisees. You tithe the mint and the rue, meaning those are the seeds that are growing out in their mint box outside their kitchen window. When they clip a piece of mint off to cook in their dinner, they even save some out of that for their tithing. Now, I'm sure that what this Pharisee says is all true about himself. I'm sure he's a really good guy and he would make a great neighbor, but his spirit is all wrong. There's no sense of need, there's no sense of sin, and there's no humble dependence on God. If you look in your notes this morning, you see a quote I put in there from Charles Simeon. It's not going on the screen, but it, Charles noted way back in 1832, this guy, he just glances at God. He doesn't really pray. He's just a, tossing it up there but using this to parade himself. Jesus spoke this way so frankly to individuals that this is why they were so ticked at him. Watch this. Look with me on the screen. Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God, and they hated him for saying it. And this parable just became one more reason for them to reject Jesus, because he's going contrary to what they're thinking is righteousness. Now, in contrast to that, we have the tax collector, and it's a very short description the tax collector's spirit is completely the reverse. He approaches God with this deep humility, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Stark contrast. He stands completely removed from the holy place. He's not pushing his way to the front of the crowd. He's going to the very back. And he doesn't even dare lift up his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't even lift his hands. He wouldn't want to draw attention to himself. 
He knows that he's just covered with guilt, so he simply just pours out this confession of sinfulness. What you may not know about tax collectors is that they entered into contracts with Rome. They would be what you would consider today a a modern-day version of a loan shark. The contracts that they had with Rome were to collect taxes from their own population in order to turn it over to Caesar. And they did it with Roman guards on their right and on their left, and they would sit at their tax table, and they would collect from individuals up and beyond what they owed for their taxes. You think you pay a lot to the government for taxes? They would stack on their fee on top of that. But if an individual couldn't pay their taxes, they then became loan sharks. And they would take money that they've stolen from other people, and they would loan it to pay the taxes for a person who couldn't pay it, but they would give them a 30-day, 60-day, 90-day window and add usury on top of that. And that's why they were hated. They were despised by the people of their community. A lot of individuals studying this who are experts in theology think that Jesus is actually probably telling this parable based on the life of Zacchaeus or Matthew. Matthew, one of his own disciples, had been a tax collector. And this is the imagery that people have of someone who's got such a broken heart over what his life was like. He just comes before God, and he's pleading for mercy. His prayer is incredibly short, but it's just gut-wrenchingly honest. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Even in his looking for forgiveness, he knows it's not what he deserves. So he asks for mercy. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He just asks for mercy, God, mercy, And this is, church, where grace and mercy walk hand in hand when God shows you his love for you. The two become partners in God's love for us. Just one more note for you of detail before we move on to the last statement. Did you notice when you read his statement about who he is that he doesn't use the word a? He doesn't say, I'm a sinner, but he says, be merciful to me, the sinner. Why do I pull that distinction out? Because what he's done is he's just put himself in a silo. He knows the category of the Ahamaritz. I know where I belong. I I know that I'm in that category. I, I know that I'm the sinner. He knows the depth of his sin. He doesn't need the Pharisee to point it out to him and call him the scum of the earth. But I also notice he doesn't make any attempt to vindicate himself before God. He's not saying, God, I don't have any other choice. This is the only way I can make a living. I have to do this. Nobody starts out as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, or 12-year-old saying, I want to be a tax collector one day. Not in their world. Somehow, over a course of a lifetime, he'd made these decisions, and he'd morphed into this. And he's viewed with absolute disregard by the people of his nation. He's a crook, and he knows it, and he asks for mercy, and mercy is the only thing that he would dare ask for. So Jesus has this crowd gathered, and he's looking right into the very eyes of super-religious people, and they know about God, and they read about God, and they think they understand God, and Jesus is saying, No, you don't. You misunderstand God's righteousness. Because Jesus is saying in this parable, here's what you do not want to do. You do not want to trust in your own righteousness. 
because of verse 14, and this is where it ends. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So God the Son leaves heaven and becomes Jesus the man. God the Son condescends, becomes Jesus the man, and we have God the Son on planet earth in the form of Jesus. And Jesus has just decreed, this man is righteous. That man is not. God has just made a judgment. The tax collector is righteous and is justified. The Pharisee is not, not at all. The phrase, the forward phrase there, rather than the other, the word rather is way too weak in the English language. Jesus didn't mean for this to be weak. If you read it in the Greek language, it actually says, but not the other. But to simplify it and make it understandable for people who live in the English-speaking world, in the Western world, Western world, it, it says, rather than the other. Jesus is deliberately saying, this one is not justified, so I want to end by focusing on those four words with you. Look with me on the screen, rather than the other, and here's why. Those, New Hope Church, are terrifying words. One is justified, one is not. One is perfect in the eyes of the world. The other one stands in the back of the line. One is despised by humanity, but is regarded by God. One is loved by humanity and is condemned by God. Those are terrifying words. The Pharisee is the perfect one, and he thanks God for my perfect life. I'm so great. And he's not justified, he's condemned. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to God. So he looks away from himself and anything that he could bring to the table. And he comes to God. He's come to this courtyard with a holy, trembling fear of the God of the Bible, while the Pharisee walks boldly up to the altar and puts himself on display. Tax collector's trusting nothing of himself, none of his accomplishment, just, God, I need your mercy. And in turn, God declares him righteous. That's what justified means. Jesus says that one went home justified. To be justified is to be declared by God righteous. That's you, New Hope. That's what he's done for you if you've looked to Jesus this morning. You consider yourself a believer in Jesus? It's not because of the righteousness that you have done. It's because of what Jesus did for you. Can I get an amen on that one? All right? That, that's what he did. He justified you in the eyes of God. And we know how God did that. They might have misunderstood. Jesus is trying to clear it up for them, but we know how God gives righteousness to those who are not righteous. And I bet if I did a little poll this morning and asked just for a show of hands, 
And I said, who do you identify more with, the Pharisee or the tax collector? The majority of us would probably put our hands up with the tax collector. We would consider ourselves not righteous. We're, we're church people. We understand what Jesus did. But how did he do that? This is especially important for you if you're new to church. Look at me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God the Father, God made him, Jesus, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And to that I say amen and amen and amen and amen. Thank you, God, for that. Because it's not based on what I did. It's based on what Jesus did. That's you, New Hope. You are who God declared you to be. You're going to see Rich write about that this week in the devotional guide that you will pick up in the fourth book. You are who God declared you to be. And if God declared you to be righteous, you are righteous. Would you receive this if you're not yet there? If you're, if you're not yet a believer, if you're perhaps very new to church, maybe watching at home, this is the first time you've ever heard this stuff. Would you receive this? You can't be righteous in your own effort. You can only be righteous in Jesus. He is the one who makes you righteous if you will believe. And you have to have that because what is God's standard? God's standard is absolute perfection. You want to be in God's presence? The only way that you can do that is to be perfect. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the possibility to hit that standard is not complicated. It only comes down to one of two choices. You're either in the religion of human accomplishments, you be reminded of that, the religion of human accomplishment or the religion of God's accomplishment. Those are your choices. Which one do you land on? Either you can make yourself righteous before God or you can't. There are no other options. See, this parable is just another demonstration of God's passion for those who don't measure up. Here's a reality to send you out the door with this morning. I suspect that that tax collector, whether that was Matthew or Zacchaeus, we don't know, check in heaven one day. I suspect that this guy, he wrestled with this the rest of his life just like you do because he knows all about all of his past failures and Satan constantly would throw up in the mind of everyone who believes that you're not good enough. To which you can respond, yeah, you're right, but Jesus is. Jesus did it. I'm not good enough, but my Lord is. I suspect he wrestled with this reality all the time. Why? Because he didn't feel justified. And the truth is, if God himself hadn't declared it in writing, we would have a hard time believing it about ourselves, let alone a 2,000-year-old character in a parable in Jesus' story. But I'm here to remind you, New Hope, today that what God declares to be true is true. And if Jesus has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen? Amen. That's a good word to go out the door on. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, and our words fall short, but we thank you for the clarity of your word and the way that you remind us once again who we are in you. 
what you declare about us to be true is what is true. And thank you for showing us the standard and reminding us once again. So God, I ask that you would translate that to action on our part, that with proud humility we would go forward, that our pride would be in you and what you accomplished, that we would boast of what you've done, but that we would do it in humility, recognizing we're no different than the tax collector. I pray that for your people, Father. I pray that as we take on this week, that we would be willing to speak into the lives of people who are very afraid about their future. Give us that courage. God, we would ask for that capacity in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.